Thanks for downloading show 97 of the C-Suite podcast, the second of two episodes produced in partnership with PR Week that we're recording at their Pharmacoms conference taking place in Canary Wharf, London. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and as in the previous episode, I'm going to be chatting to more of the speakers from this conference, which we hope will provide a real flavour and understanding of the topics and issues being discussed. If you haven't had a chance to download the first episode, make sure you catch up on that because there's some great interviews already recorded. But before you do that, we've got some more lined up on this episode, starting with Roland van der Heyden, Director of Digital Communications at AstraZeneca. Uh, Roland has just been speaking here at the event on the topic of creating a unified digital strategy to present a clear message. Uh, Roland, how was your session? It was great and I had great engagement with the room. Um, What I tried to emphasize in my presentation was the importance of sound editorial planning. And what we mean by that, it is a cross-functional structure uh, across all teams that use the global corporate digital channels for content. So the editorial planning teams consist of uh, uh, HR, um, sustainability, the therapeutic areas, uh, the science units. So everybody who is involved with producing content for our global channels are part of the editorial planning group and that cross-functional team has given us quite a bit of success in this. So so can you talk us through how you've changed things within AstraZeneca then in relation to this area? Yeah, so because we are a very small and nimble team in the corporate digital team, uh, we, uh, and not as big as some of our competitors, uh, we needed this cross-functional involvement of all those teams that are part of global corporate affairs but are also outside of our direct control. Um, And that is the biggest change uh, we have implemented, is to cement this structure. So there's an editorial planning group that meets monthly, there's an editorial planning group that uh, meets weekly, Uh, there is a direct feed to the markets uh, and their uh, alignment session, to the internal communications network and to the digital market network, and there's also a direct, direct line into our leadership team. So that whole setup and that whole structure is what really makes it work and then it's also kind of supported by a metrics and KPI framework but I'm not stating that we are completely there yet so that is something that we are still building. So in terms of being more specific with both your external and internal channels how how are you implementing all this? So the editorial planning group um, is uh, actually looking at all the content and all the channels and uh, that is both internal and external. We have seen the amount of channels that we play on, as I call it, have we seen an increase in that in the last few years, uh, because we used to play only on Twitter and on LinkedIn as a corporate digital team, uh, and we did work with internal comms to a certain extent with regards to the intranet, and we had a not really functioning internal social channel. Uh, But now we have a responsibility also for Instagram. Uh, We have relaunched YouTube. Um, We have a new internal social platform. Uh, We also look at digital signage signage across our buildings, etc. So we try to involve all the channels in our editorial planning efforts so we can make sure that content is also crafted for those channels and for the audiences that are on those channels. So covering all channels and covering content that is relevant for channels and audiences is key part of what this editorial planning effort is actually looking at and is trying to manage. You you mentioned earlier about um, the fact that you don't have the biggest team or certainly compared to other um, organizations. I mean, 
How big a challenge is it with so many different channels available and in fact new channels launching you know, every now and again as well? Yeah, the essence is you have to just get on with it because um, uh, you need to be audience centric and uh, the new generations are on new channels. So uh, four years ago, Facebook was a prime channel for recruitment and we see now that Instagram is becoming much more important uh, for recruitment. And uh, yeah, it's a continuous learning curve, it's continuous upskilling, being aware, staying on top of the game. It's also the reason that we upskill all of our global corporate affairs colleagues in the digital communication space. Uh, so we ran, since last year, we run a corporate digital upskilling program and all of our colleagues globally uh, are actually mandated to go through the program. It's very engaging, it's short videos, etc. They can do it in their own time. But we want to create this baseline of knowledge about channels, content, audiences, and it's relevant for everybody who calls themselves a corporate communications professional in this day and age. So can you share an example of how this has all been implemented into a specific campaign? Yeah. So in this editorial planning group, we, lo we look at the kind of traditional milestones in the year, so the big medical congresses, uh, we look at big data readouts and what we can do with regards to kind of social media and digital campaigning around that. Uh, but more importantly, to break through this information overload that all of our audiences suffer from, really, uh, we have started to identify campaign periods. Uh, to, and we dedic in those periods, we dedicate all of our channels, um, internally and externally, uh, to a certain topic. So one example is there's a big need for uh, recruits in uh, data sciences and artificial intelligence. So then we dedicate all of our channels, so the websites, uh, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, etc., towards that theme. So we craft a lot of content that is bespoke to channels and to audiences, employee-generated content. We use digital marketing techniques, we write blog posts, but we do the same internally and externally. So we really dedicate our channels during a period of time towards a certain theme. And we call it cover stories because it's like the cover of a magazine. And you can't, cannot prevent that in a magazine there's a lot of content about other topics. But the prime thing you will see on all of our channels during a period is that cover story. That's what we're about during that month. And so um, how have you measured the success of all that? Um, that's quite complex, so we use uh, different methodologies. We try that. Uh, we try to bring it all together in a metrics and analytics and reporting framework. So we use enabling technologies like Brandwatch and other, yeah, online sentiment and online listening platforms. Uh, we use the built-in. Uh, analytics capabilities of those platforms and we try to bring that all together to prove the success of uh, content and reaching audiences but more importantly we also try to set more and more because we're not completely there yet I must admit uh, but set real KPIs and some of my internal stakeholders call that hero metrics so the real downloads of a document the amount of ca candidates in the recruitment pipeline and uh, those are kind of the real things and uh, the real conversion you want with your content is not that somebody clicked on your uh, link but that they actually applied for a job Absolutely. so if we see a big increase in the candidate pipeline for data scientists and AI specialists during or just after our campaign period we have we know we have done the right thing well that's fantastic uh, Roland thank you so much for uh, sharing that and uh, for joining the podcast thank you very much 
So I'm now joined by Bavin Vade, Head of Corporate Communications and Public Affairs at Ferring Pharmaceuticals, who has just presented a case study on how putting purpose front and centre has maximised corporate reputation for his company. Uh, before we talk about that case study, Bevin, uh, do you want to just quickly share what Ferring's core area of work is focused in? Thanks, Russell. So uh, at Ferring, uh, our, our purpose and mission is really to build families and help people live better lives. We're a company of roughly 6,500 employees located in Sampre, Switzerland, close to Geneva. And our core, one of our core therapy areas is reproductive medicine and maternal health. So really things like fertility uh, treatments uh, are, are very important to us. So I, I, I guess that area of work makes it pretty easy to focus on your business purpose then? It, it really does. And actually, the, the, one of the reasons I joined the company was that the purpose was very clear. And it was something that I could really align to. Uh, from, from earlier work, what I recognized that uh, there were loads and loads of stories within the company around purpose. But all we had to do was just start bringing them out and start telling them. So uh, it's a brilliant place to be if you're looking for uh, people-centric or family-centric stories. Uh, when we were really thinking about purpose at the early stages, we recognised that purpose-driven uh, companies actually do perform up to 30 or 40% better than other companies. Um, and I think that was one of our strongest drivers in making sure that we had a purpose-driven communication strategy, uh, which was really about telling people and letting them know about what Ferring is here to do and what we want to do. Uh, there's a lot of discussion and talk around purpose. We hear that in uh, lots of uh, Harvard Business Review, for example, but actually trying to put putting that into action is really hard, and how do you consistently do that? Um, so when we were looking at the company and thinking about our therapy areas, the one that we were really core on and on our focus, that's where we decided that building families is, is our core, and this is what we're going to communicate and share for now and in the future. Well, well let's, um, let's go into a bit more detail on that, because you talked through um, a particular campaign in your presentation. Can you go into a bit more detail on that? Yeah, so the, the particular campaign was really based on insights first of all so we looked into the community that we were, we were serving which is really the fertility patients or fertility or anyone looking or potential parents who are looking to start a family and something that was very common coming across was this theme around project family so when people were starting their fertility journey it was all about how you know that they were starting their own project family and how was that kind of uh, what was that going to look like and how were they going to do that? Uh, so recognising that we also needed to differentiate ourselves from other pharma companies, uh, that others were either focused very solely on mothers or just patients. Uh, we, we're a family company as well and we're a private company, so we decided to align with our own internal purpose and actually make that external as well. So building families or project families was the inception in the early stages. And what we had to do is really build that into a campaign that our employees could get behind, um, have some fun, and actually make that something that everyone is starting to live and breathe. Uh, there's the fantastic example that we hear always from a communications perspective around John F. Kennedy, and uh, when he was at NASA once, and then he was walking around, and, and he spoke to someone, and actually it was a janitor, and he asked the question, what are you here to do? And, and the janitor responded, I'm here to put people on the moon. And uh, that was uh, an example I gave to our executive team, and they sort of challenged me to say, okay, fine, get everyone behind behind our purpose of yeah. building families and uh, just do it. Brilliant. <laughs> so, so from from there, the, one of the campaigns was really about can we find other companies that have a very similar purpose to Ferring and how can we build on that? 
So when we was doing the research, we found uh, another Nordic company where we have some roots, uh, which is also very family-centric, uh, being Lego. And we decided to think about, okay, how can we use Lego to help communicate our purpose internally at the start and then sort of externally thereafter? Uh, so one of the ideas that came up was, can we all combine our employees to build a giant Lego baby? Uh, first thing, has it been done? No, it hadn't been done. So we had some great fun pulling that together and really, uh, you know, getting the troops together per se uh, to make sure that they can all build the Lego baby themselves because they'll be building the family thereafter. So you, sh you, uh, you actually shared a, a photo during your um, presentation. It looked like a pretty huge uh, construction. Yeah, so actually so there was a member of my team and she's, she's roughly about five foot, uh, five foot six and, uh, and the baby was roughly about five foot eight. So she, she, she always likes to say that it was quite a big baby that she had to deliver as part of the project. Tremendous. Um, and actually, if we, we believe that it is the world's largest giant Lego baby. And so, and so what, what was the next, what happened next then? What did you do with that? Yeah, so from, from next steps, I think that the, the main thing was how do we bring people together and, and then how did the baby really live and breathe the, the, the purpose of the company? So uh, when we had the uh, family day event and bringing the internal stakeholders together, our employees together, we decided to actually put this onto the Congress circuit and to see if the doctors would actually also uh, get in, uh, get enthused behind this. And actually we found it did. And all of our reps uh, also were behind this. So our actual mission or, or purpose was also being communicated externally uh, so one of our core congresses, it was actually the highlight of the congress on one of the stands. So actually, it was attracting people. So from a compliance perspective, we had lots of uh, questions about, you know, is this is this suitable or not, or is this a gimmick? Actually, it worked because it, you know, it completely supported what we do. It was based on evidence, and there was that connection as well. And uh, we also had some fun doing it. So uh, some of the feedback that we had from customers was excellent, but also internally, it helped shape uh, the mindset that we wanted around building families. So I was going to ask, in terms of how you measure the impact of a campaign like that, both you know, for corporate awareness and reputation, but also internally as well. I think if we start, first of all, from an external perspective, we, we did some benchmark with uh, our core audience, which was some fertility experts, and then also the obstetricians and obstetricians. And uh, so we had a baseline before we did any of our work. Um, a year later, we went back to uh, a similar group, actually a similar group of uh, professionals, and we saw an, a 40% increase in our reputation compared to our competitors who are also in this space. In addition, we also were looking at uh, our social media statistics in the sense of how many followers were growing, how much engagement were we getting. Uh, we also saw that we doubled our following in LinkedIn. So at start, we had roughly 70,000 followers. A year later, it went up to 140,000 because we were consistently delivering content, which was authentic, telling a story and also connecting it with our purpose every single time. Was that through just organic reach or were you s supporting that with paid activity good, as well? Good, good question. And actually on LinkedIn, it was organic. Uh, we did use we, we did use paid on Instagram and uh, and on Twitter, but for LinkedIn actually it's quite expensive for paid. So we, we decided that we'll go we'll stick to Instagram and Twitter for for our paid pieces. Yeah, still still great results. Um, any final message to leave our listeners on putting purpose front and centre of your comms then? Um, I think the message is is you really have to live and breathe your, your purpose every day. Um, the management have to have a complete buy-in and sell-in of what is that purpose and they have to also live and breathe it. It also needs to be very simple. Uh, you know, when we're looking at some of the other industries and the other areas, uh, it was very clear how, for example, Nova Nordisk, uh, someone who I, you know, have been following over the years, were very clear about their purpose and how over, you know, 
over 10 years, they really have been able to own the diabetes space. Uh, their purpose was very clear. It was changing diabetes. And I'm, you know, I still look at that and think, how do they do that? And, and now we're sort of faring a journey where we're trying to really grow and, and build on our purpose of building families. And um, I, I look forward to watching this space with, with, with the team and, um, and then seeing how this uh, really lives and breathes and supports the business in their long-term objectives. Excellent. Uh, Bavin Vade, thank you very much for joining the show. Thank you, Russell. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or in any one of your favorite podcast apps. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. So we come to our final interview of the conference, and I'm joined by three more speakers from today who have just been part of a panel session discussing what should farmers' relationship with patient groups look like, uh, which is a nice follow-up from our first interview on the uh, first episode with Rachel Royal uh, from IBM, of course. So welcome to Maria Caparasso, farmer and med tech lead at Prostate Cancer UK, uh, Clara Bentham, Global Director of Corporate Communications at the European Specialist Pharmaceutical Company Norgene, and Alex White, CEO of the UK-based research, publishing and consultancy group Patient View. So Maria, as the representative of a patient group here, um, can you start by explaining how in your experience relationships with patient groups and pharma companies have worked in the past and then crucially what you are looking for from them moving forward? Well, we've definitely moved a long way from a situation that we had in the past where we had very transactional um, interaction with the pharmaceutical companies that will come to the patient group organization, make a donation, which, of course, the patient group organization is willing to accept, but also being quite shy about it. Now, we moved to a different environment where we're more open about the collaboration we have with different companies and also more proud of. Uh, we're looking for longer-term partnerships with the industry. Um, they work across different areas where we could be uh, possibly working together, uh, from the basic exchange of information with pharmaceutical companies around um, our plans for professional education, awareness raising, and information for patients to um, information about um, clinical trials and how we can influence companies on making those clinical trials more relevant for patients and also making them easier for patients to take part into uh, the clinical trial. We're looking at a way of working with the companies at different levels within the organisation and um, that is really the area where we want to be operating in the future. And Clara, is that uh, similar from the pharmaceutical side? Yeah, so I absolutely agree. I think the most successful relationships with partner organisations from a pharma company perspective are those where it really is a long-term collaboration, a true collaboration. So it's, it's colleagues working together in a team of shared objectives where they bring their different areas of expertise to that team, but they really do think um, in a long term about a, a true partnership. Are you sharing data as well, think, you know, in research? Is that, is that the kind of stuff that you're looking at in terms of collaborations? That's something that we definitely want to do uh, more of in the future. As a um, research funding patient group organisation, we want to bring together the brightest mind in uh, the research and clinical community and being able to share that knowledge so that perhaps a study that's being conducted by a company can have some results. It could help a study that's actually conduct, uh, conducted by a patient group organisation. So we're all in for the um, sharing of information. And, and Alex, sorry, let's bring you in at, the, at this point. What's your thoughts here? Uh, well, I just wanted to add in that um, 
within all this, it's very important to look at how healthcare has changed over the last sort of decade and why we're in a situation where patient groups and pharma might find themselves as um, willing to partner in a way that they probably weren't before. And one of the main reasons is that the patient groups themselves have evolved quite considerably. There are now millions of patient groups worldwide. They're very much more sophisticated and they're respected by all levels of all stakeholders in a way that perhaps before they might have been considered on the fringe. And I the other most important thing is that the uh, patient group has a bird's eye view of the whole of the healthcare system. Only the patient group works with doctors and um, nurses and uh, pharma and regulators and networking with all these stakeholders so that uh, they can are in a unique position to see what a patient might want or need and translate those needs to the pharmaceutical company. So all this talk of patient centricity uh, really can only be articulated by patient groups because an individual patient doesn't really quite comprehend what goes on inside a pharmaceutical company. And um, that is why we want to work more closely uh, with companies in pharmaceutical sectors because as patient group organisation we do have intelligence, we do have experience of what the reality is for the patients and by working with the industry ultimately we can have the industry being better at what to do and then ultimately being able to come up with a solution that can make the life of patients better. Uh, I just a very quick interjection is that a very good example of the way patient groups have transformed healthcare is the carers movement because the carers movement was a grassroots movement and it's changed legislation it's got a situation where carers are recognised as entities where they need breaks they need help, they are uh, individuals within the healthcare system until the carers movement happened that wasn't the case. Yes I agree with all of that and actually I want to add another dimension to this as well which is that we mustn't forget that for people that work in the pharmaceutical industry industry. They go to work every day to help people to live better, longer, healthier lives. And actually the relationship with a patient organisation, if it's used internally with employees, is hugely motivational for people. It gives people a huge sense of purpose in their work. And actually it reminds people who maybe are working in a, you know, finance or on the manufacturing um, plant, it reminds them that what they are doing is actually helping to change people's lives. And I think that is a really important benefit of the patient organisation relationship, which sometimes gets forgotten about. Alex, taking all this into consideration then, can't pharmaceutical companies though just utilise social media resources to do all this themselves in terms of all, you know, getting are, all this feedback? Yeah, there are some companies out there still that think that trawling social media and listening to conversations of patients talking about their experiences is the beginning and the end. I would say that uh, what what is actually happening is that that's terribly important, yes, the patient experience. But in addition to all that is that we're living in a world where People read a lot on the social media. They go and see their doctor. They don't trust their doctor anymore. The relationship between the doctor and the patient is a very fragile one now. And so they're challenging the system, and they want change. And many more are joining as members to patient groups. And these patient groups can see what the wants and needs are and change the world around them. And so, therefore, the world of patient advocacy has grown and exploded. So this is an area that... Perhaps pharmaceutical companies may be a bit cautious about and reaching out on that score, but still it's happening and it has to be recognised. 
Maria. Well, I just wanted to add that, yes, it's all very good to uh, reach out to those patients that are talking about their experience on social media, but there needs to be an understanding that those people, if they're doing what they're doing, it's because they've got, they're already quite vocal and they're quite eloquent for themselves. What they're missing out is the other part of the patient population in any disease, in any disease area that actually they are approaching the patient group organisations that may have had difficult experience, they may be vulnerable people, and they have a um them ever had complications and they're just not interested in sharing their experience to an external audience. Now you've got a situation where the patient group organization is dealing with all of that. The people that don't want to talk about their experience but are still encountering difficulties and the people are more than happy to talk about their experience and sharing that with the wider world. And if a company is just basing their understanding of um, the patient experience on those individuals then they're not going to get the true picture of the reality. Yeah, so I think from, again, from a pharmaceutical perspective, the reality is that you do both. So we do lots of social listening so to understand what our patients are talking about online. But we also have great relationships with patient organisations. And one area, which is a newer area, which is you know, quite innovative now, is a lot of pharma companies are starting to develop apps to help patients to manage their conditions. And actually social listening really helps with that because you can actually, through trawling through, you know, online conversations from around the globe, you can understand what patients are asking, what, what they're posting about, what they're saying they find difficult, um, and you can kind of address that, address that with an app. But you, that does not take away from the relationship that you need with the patient organisation to do user testing, to validate it, to really understand, as you say, the, the other dimensions. So in, in reality, we work with both. Are you able to share any examples of how it's worked well that, that you've worked, worked on? With patient organisations. Mm. So we work with lots of patients organizations across Europe the world I mean the, the best ones going back to our earlier conversation are the ones where we actually work together on a long-term basis so we, we'd have a campaign with a very very clear shared objective it would be a joint campaign it's not a transactional relationship where you give over money but a joint campaign where you're trying to achieve whether it be policy change or an increase in awareness of a disease population or something like that. And you work as a true team where you're delivering against your campaign objectives. And yeah, that's, that's when it works the most successfully. Well, on a final note, I just wanted to say that um, a week um, at Patient View, we, um, uh, we do these corporate reputation studies and we find out from patient groups what they think of uh, pharmaceutical companies right down to which companies are best and which are worst. But one of the things that's coming out of that data is that the companies that merely give money and walk away are the ones that are least well thought of. And the ones that are really helping and working together and sharing with patient groups are better thought of. OK, so just to finish off, coming back to the session you've just taken part in, um, were there any questions raised or specific takeouts that you can share with our listeners? Clara, how about... Um, there were some questions around who within a pharmaceutical company is the best person to have that relationship with a patient organisation. I know Maria had a view that within the communications team, often you have like a patient advocacy or a patient engagement lead who works across 
different disease areas and actually they've got a good overview of the whole company and they've got good insight into what's going across the organisation. Actually, as somebody who heads up communications, I would agree that that's a pretty good place. But Maria, you might want to add a bit more on that. Yes, yes. In the partnerships we have with different companies, we do work with people that are in different roles. So the more the person is in a role that has got to do with the rest of the organisation, the easier, because ultimately their role is going to be as a kind of interlink within the different um, specialities within the organisation as we're trying to match up. People have got similar roles at our organisation with their own organisation so they can have their own collaboration in their area of expertise. Another um, important point is also that we mentioned was the senior buy-in for uh, for the partnership. It's very important to have the leadership of the organisation at both ends really to be um, willing to make the partnerships work because when you don't have that then the uh, relationship ends up being sometimes just a PR exercise and an interesting donation at the other side. I'm not saying that you need to have a CEO working day to day with the CEO at a charity but even the one conversation uh, once a year can make a huge difference. Sure. And Alex, final word from you? What well, sort of this, um, this whole meeting is very heavy on social media and very excited about the role it can play uh, in, um, in understanding patients as well as giving back to patients. But I just wanted to, as I said in the meeting, uh, it's tech, it's, social media is just a technology. It's a means to an end. And the end is the more important thing, not the social technology. Good point uh, to end on. So um, that's great. Thank you so much, uh, Maria, Clara and Alex, for joining the show. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Well, in fact, that wraps up these two episodes uh, from the Pharmacoms conference. So thank you to all my guests who took the time to chat to us today and to the organising team at PR Week for making it happen. We hope you've got a lot out of both of our episodes and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on the topic. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do that on our Facebook page, Twitter feed or LinkedIn and Instagram pages, which are all linked from the top of the website at csweetpodcast.com, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via favorite podcast app and if you've enjoyed the show please do give us a positive rating and review uh, finally if you would like to get in touch with us you can do that via the contact form on the website as well or you can reach me via twitter using at ross goldsmith but for now thanks for listening and goodbye